Folks, we have a really important text in front of us. It's Acts 10 and, and chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 18. So it's a long text, but it all ties together. That's the reason we're taking it together. We're going to look, first of all, at uh, chapter 10, and then we'll read parts of chapter 11 later. Uh, you remember that when we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit in reaching the world, uh, Jesus Christ, before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples that they're going to be with his witnesses in Jerusalem right there, and then in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the world. So Jesus gives the Great Commission. And then he tells them, if you remember, in chapter 1, that same verse actually, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So he told them to wait to receive the Spirit, because you can't carry out the commission of Christ without the Spirit of Christ. And he promises the Spirit, and then you remember in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes, and then this filled and revived church begins to move out and make a difference in the world in which they're living. And then you remember they face various forms of opposition. The first one coming from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. And they are hauled in before the Sanhedrin on multiple occasions and whipped and threatened with their lives. And their response is one of responding with joy. Not because they got whipped, but because they had the honor of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Remarkable passage. And then you see that when they uh, overcome that opposition, that the devil has a new strategy. And you remember in chapter 6 we saw that, okay, uh, outward persecution is not going to slow these people down. Uh, Let's try some inward uh, division within the church. So they get two groups in the church upset with each other, which would serve, of course, to distract the apostles and the leaders of the church from their primary ministry, which is to proclaim the gospel and to implement the justice of the gospel wherever they went. And so the elders saw it right away. And they appointed deacons to minister to the church and to care for her uh, so that she's properly provided for, so that social justice is taking place within the church, and so that these men can remain devoted to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Uh, Then we move along and see some more persecution with Stephen. What happens, of course, the Lord uses that to scatter the church into areas where they had not been aggressively ministering namely Samaria, Uh, and we find Philip going into Samaria, and then we find some more Christians dispersed. Uh, We saw this last week in chapter 9 as a result of the persecution of Stephen. We'll see some more today. We also have seen the conversion of Saul, and Saul immediately faced opposition in his ministry, and the Lord used it to guide him in different ways and to train him and develop him. So we're seeing this massive conflict uh, between the church and the world, between the gospel and unbelief, and between those who are serving him and those who are not yet converted. It will always be that way until Christ returns. So we've seen external opposition to the gospel. We've seen uh, internal to the church opposition to the gospel. Now, today what we're going to see is something that's internal to our own souls. In other words, there are impediments to the gospel everywhere. They're in the unbelieving world. They're in the church itself. And then deep down here in our hearts, 
we all harbor some things that are contrary to the gospel. And what we're going to see in the text before us today that God knows all this stuff. You don't hide things from God. You don't hide the secrets of your heart from God. And He is going to overcome those things in your heart as well as the things in the church and the, the opposition in the world. It's a marvelous text. It's a life changer. And my prayer is that my life will be changed and your life will be changed when we look at the Word of God this morning. It's the, the longest single narrative in Acts. 66 verses. Uh, chapter 10, 1 through eleven eighteen. It all hangs together. And you'll find some repetition in it. Sort of telling of the story and then a retelling of the story and then a retelling of the story and then a retelling of the story. It's obvious that Luke is making a real point here about what God did to get these Jewish leaders to go to Gentiles, to get these people who had a single race and heritage and religious background to reach out to people who are very different from themselves. There was this internal resistance to doing that. And God uh, went to work on it. Luke makes a huge point of it to show that Peter may have been known as the apostle to the Jews and Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. But make no mistake about it. Paul was devoted to the Jews and Peter was devoted to the Gentiles. So that every apostle was dealing with both Jew and Gentile. Every apostle was dealing with everybody in the world and God saw to it. Well, let's read the text beginning with chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being led down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision... 
The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And in the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Okay, let's turn back to the first part of this chapter, and we'll see this, that the gospel vision shatters 
every opposing tradition. The gospel vision shatters every opposing tradition. There are traditions and habits and biases and patterns that oppose the gospel. They're all around us in the world. They're all around us in the church. And they're all throughout your own heart. It's amazing how we can just take the traditions received from our fathers and just pass them on thoughtlessly. Peter hadn't been completely thoughtless, but he was passing on the traditions from his fathers. And he was acting it out. And God had some news for him. What your daddy told you is not exactly right. It's not the way I want you to live your life. And you're going to have to be willing to break some conventions, break some customs, break some traditions in order to implement the gospel tradition. And the gospel has its own tradition. It has its own habits. It has its own ways. And it opposes the ways of this world. As John Stott said in his commentary, if you had a chance to read it before today, he says this chapter is not so much about the conversion of Cornelius as it is about the conversion of Peter. And that's what we want to examine today. The gospel vision shatters every opposing tradition. So we've got to get the gospel vision. And Peter had a vision. Cornelius had a vision. And that vision shattered their expectations. And a lot of times we're not available to the vision because we're not willing to shatter any of our traditions. And if your traditions come first and your habits come first and the way everything was given to you comes first and your comfort zone comes first, you won't have a vision in the first place. But notice how the vision comes to these men. I want you to see in verses 1 through 16 that it is the prayerful who receive the vision. So it's men who go to prayer, men who are really looking to the Lord, men who want to dialogue with Him, men who want to get close to Him, men who want to have uh, communications and intimacy with the Father. They're the ones who get vision. And all, most of the time, people are just going about their business, doing it the same way they've always done it. And they don't stop to even think about God's presence in their business or their daily lives. And they never go to 30,000 feet. They never, they never see things from God's perspective because they don't talk to Him. So in, in the Bible, God is talking to us. In prayer, we're talking to Him. And in the midst of prayer, we're also waiting upon Him to bring to our minds the things that we've learned and to help us apply them. That's what, that's what you do when you take a walk in the woods or you just get a quiet time. You have... Some of you have been in Amen for years. You've been in your churches. You have the Bible stored in your heart. Some of you as little guys, you know, little elementary students, you memorize Scripture. You've got a lot of stuff stored in your head. You've got a lot of experience. You need time to get off before the Lord and ask Him to help you apply what you know from the Bible to the circumstances that you're living in right now. So the Bible becomes living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, not just in your mind, but in your life, so that your life begins to cut like the Word of God does. And that takes contemplation and prayer. And uh, the the things I tell folks when, when they want to get vision for their lives that they need, number one, you need time set aside with no interruptions. Some of you, maybe your children are up and gone, you can get that quiet place in your own house, kind of like I can. I've got a little place. It's about 15 by 15. That's my universe. It's where I do all my studying, my prayer, my contemplation. But it's, it's expansive. It's a little room, and it feels like it's covering the entire cosmos because there's where I talk to God. Well, my children are up and out. I don't have the interruptions. 
When my children were at my feet, I had to have other little places where I would go to get quiet. Why? You need time uninterrupted. You need your Bible with you so that you're hearing the Word of God. And you need to pray. And you need something to write on. Because once you start contemplating what the Word of God means for you and you're asking God to guide you and you're looking for direction and vision in your life, He's going to start giving it to you and you need to take notes. And uh, I would always take notes and they, they wouldn't be in any particular order. I was just taking things, thoughts, and ideas as God was giving them to me. I mean, He's real. He's personal. You can talk to Him. You should expect Him to communicate with you. Now, you can't be sure. You know, if it's not in this book... And I'm not talking about the footnotes. <laughs> I'm talking about the Word of God, the Bible. If it's not here, you can't be absolutely sure of it. If I'm taking an impression that I'm getting in a, a contemplative time with the Lord, and I take it down in my notes, well, I'm going to have to check those notes with somebody and see if they think it makes sense too. So I check myself here. I'm not sure about this. I'm absolutely positive about that. So let's be careful, but let's look for the Lord to give us vision. And it comes to men who will wait on Him and pray. And if you're not excited about life, let me tell you, one reason might be you don't have a vision that's compelling. You don't have a vision that's calling forth the things that God has given you, the gifts He's given you. You don't have an exciting, adventuresome vision that you're seeking to live out. And you, know, you want to know why you don't have the vision? Because you don't take the time to go talk to Him. And listen to Him guide you and give you these impressions. And then you bring, then after... That season of seeking the Lord, then you bring your closest brothers into you. And you say, you know, I think this seems to be what the Lord's putting in my heart. What do you think? And you get your vision checked with some other godly friends. Well, in Peter's case, he's an apostle. And just like Joseph or Daniel, who are organs of revelation, as was Peter, God infallibly speaks to them in visions. But it was when Peter was praying. Notice First of all, it came to Cornelius, a seeker. It comes, first of all, to seekers when they pray. Cornelius had a vision. He wasn't converted yet, but he was genuinely seeking God. And if you're not converted yet, but you really want to know him, let me tell you how it's going to happen. You're going to seek him in prayer. You're going to ask him to come. Let me tell you, let me let you in on a little secret. The reason I tell you that is, if you're genuinely seeking and you genuinely go to him in prayer, you're going to get converted. (laughs) You can see it here with Cornelius. Because the Lord says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. There's not a seeker in the history of the world who genuinely sought him and didn't find him. So if you're seeking him, you go to him in prayer, and he's going to move on your heart. Now, you may say, oh, I'm seeking. A lot of people say they're seeking. Yeah, you're seeking. You're seeking like a bug seeks him. You ever, you, these bugs are under the rocks. You pick up the, the rock, the sunlight shines on them, and they scatter like crazy. Yeah, you seek him t- until you find him, and then you run like a scalded dog. But if you're genuinely seeking him, you will find him. And you'll seek him in prayer, and you'll find him in prayer. Now, Cornelius is what is known as a God-fearer. And this was a category of Gentile. It was a Gentile. Uh, Cornelius, of course, is a centurion, which is like a captain in the army. He had a hundred men under him. And that was a prestigious position. He made four times as much pay as a regular soldier did. So he had some money. He had some prestige. He had an office. Uh, he, he was a significant person. Uh, he is a centurion who's a Gentile, Roman sol- soldier. And 
As a Gentile, however, he was a God-fearer, which means he would go to synagogue and stand along the outside. He couldn't be admitted into the intimate fellowship of the, the Jewish fellowship, but he would come to hear the Word of God read. And he wanted to abide by the law. And he had great respect for the Jewish religion. But he was not a proselyte. In other words, he didn't submit to circumcision. And so he didn't become a full citizen of Israel. He was a God-fearer. And he wanted to seek God. And he sought Him in prayer. And he found Him. And he got a vision for how he could hear the gospel. Now you'll notice in this case that in the vision, Cornelius was not given the gospel, was he? He was given the name of the evangelist, wasn't he? And this is to still teach us something very important. People come to faith and people are saved because people like us share the gospel with them. They can receive a vision, but I don't have, a, I don't have in, in my reading of church history or of revivals or of great missionary efforts, I don't see instances where people were given the gospel in a vision. I do have multiple instances I'm aware of that people were given a vision where to get the gospel. And so it was the centurion, this uh, Cornelius. Uh, for example, my own uh, missions professor in seminary who's now deceased, he, his family when he was growing up was a missionary in Iran. And when he became an adult, he became a missionary to Afghanistan in the old days before the kingship was overthrown. And uh, he said even then, his Afghani friends would tell him that when the devil fell out of heaven, he fell right into Afghanistan. Uh, they, even they said it's the darkest place in the world. Uh, and, and of course, in those days, uh, all ministry had to be done underground because uh, you'd be immediately executed for sharing the gospel. But my seminary professor was there sharing the gospel and they built an underground church. When they, the Afghanis discovered it, <clears throat> they brought out the bulldozers and were tearing down buildings looking for the underground church. <laughs> Seriously, they were. Of course, they didn't find it. Uh, <clears throat> but my professor, Dr. J. Christy Wilson, tells me that one night he was in his home in Kabul and he had a knock on the door in the middle of the night and it was a Pashtun tribesman who had walked for two or three days and had come to his home the man knocked on his door and uh, Dr. Wilson said in the language, he said, yes, can I help you? And the, the man said, are you a prophet? And Dr. Wilson had the sense to say, yes, I am. He said, well, I had a vision three days ago that there would be a man at this address who could tell me how to get to heaven. Sir, are you that man? Now, that's a remarkable, miraculous story, a real story. It really happened. A Pashtun's tribesman was given a vision, but he was given a vision of where the evangelist was. And then he goes to the evangelist, and that man's not saved until he hears the gospel from the evangelist. Now, when, when uh, Dr. Manis Abdul Nur, who is the old Billy Graham of Egypt, and you know Egypt has more um, Christians in it than almost any of the Arab nations, and they're largely Presbyterian, by the way. Uh, you'd expect me to know that. Uh, Dr. Manis Abdul-Nur was the senior minister of the, the largest church, the Kosovo Church in Cairo, and uh, he's long since been retired. He's uh, in his mid-80s now. But one day, Dr. Manis was asked, Dr. Manis, of the 200 or so Muslim background people that you've led to Christ, which, by the way, is illegal, of the 200 people you've led to Christ, how many of those 
uh, came to Christ by way of vision or dream or something like that. Uh, the person asking the question expected him to say, you know, 15, 20% because it's very high. Dr. Manny said 100% of them. All of them. And that's been at work in the, in the oppressive uh, parts of the world. Many places, especially in the Muslim world, are very aware of this, that God is still working through visions to show people something about Christ and the need to know Him or showing Him where the evangelist is. But what I want you to notice in this text is that the man is not converted until he hears the gospel from us, from the angels that God has appointed. Angel just means messenger. We're His angels. We're His messengers. And people must come to us to get the gospel. So the question is, are they getting it? So, first of all, for seekers, and then secondly, for believers. You see it true with Peter, that just as Cornelius received the vision while he was praying, so did Peter. Peter was praying during the sixth hour, which was at noon. It was a designated prayer time. Peter went up on the roof, his quiet place. That's what the roof was for, flat roofs. And you go, you climb a ladder up to the flat roof, and up there you could have privacy. That's what Peter was looking for, privacy to be with the Lord. We know that he had been in ministry in Joppa already. He had been healing people, raised a woman from the dead. He goes now to seek the Lord. And that's when he gets this massive vision. Now, notice in verses 17 through 23a that prayerful visionaries meet divine appointments. In other words, God works through people who are seeking the vision of the Lord. And what he does is he gives you the vision, and then he doesn't just frustrate you by giving you no opportunity to exercise the vision. Now, you may not understand. You may feel frustrated. You may not recognize the opportunities, or you may wonder why in the world is he waiting so long. He does have a tendency to drag his feet and not do it on your schedule. But he gives the vision, he gives the opportunities, but he gives the opportunities to the visionaries, and he gives the visions to the people who are praying. So the people who can be most effective, there are those who are seeking the Lord, they receive a vision that shatters all common sense, and then He'll bring those divine appointments, those providences, those coincidences of things that are happening at the same time. And you notice here in verse 17 that while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision had seen, he had seen might mean, Peter saw this vision, still didn't get it, didn't know what it meant. It's amazing. So here's Peter. He gets this vision of a sheet with these animals coming down, all of which were unclean animals. And Peter was Jewish. He knew knew what he could eat and what he couldn't eat. And he hears a voice, rise up, Peter, and eat. And Peter gives his famous Peter response. This is kind of classic for Peter. By no means, Lord. That's technically called an oxymoron. By no means, Lord. You can say, by no means friend, or you can say, yes, Lord, but you can't say, by no means Lord. That makes no sense. Peter did it in Matthew 16. Peter did it in John 13. And now he does it again. The man just doesn't learn. You don't say no to the Lord. All you can say is, yes, Lord, by no means Lord. Ridiculous. Doesn't get it. So, okay, Peter, does the number three have any significance to you? Oh, we'll do this three times, okay? Make it easy for you. So God gives the vision to him three times. So Peter's now saying, 
okay, I guess I guess I eat pig. But he had no idea why he's going to eat pig. That's all he, he, he couldn't figure out what in the world this means. Peter was not your quickest disciple, okay? Now, <laughs> quickest to do of crazy things, but not the quickest to get the Lord's will here. So now Peter's still perplexed, okay? He's still just really confused over this whole thing. And what does the Lord do? The men who are sent by Cornelius, the other vision, the men who are a product of the other vision, they come to the gate. And while Peter was pondering, the Spirit said to him, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them and look at this without hesitation. For I have sent them. So look what Peter did. He invited them in to be his guests. Peter crossed the line right there. Let me tell you why. This may be hard for some people to understand, but for 1,500 years, no, 2,000 years, Jewish people who were committed to the Lord did not have unbelieving people in their home. Their home was to be clean, ritually clean. And you don't bring in dead animals and you don't bring in Gentiles. And they didn't. And Peter was an observant Jew. So he brought in some unclean Gentile people into his home. Furthermore, not only do you not bring them into your home, but you especially don't sit at table with them. Because in the Near Eastern culture, if you sit down at table with someone, you're declaring them to be a friend. You're committed to them. It's almost like a covenant meal. And that's the reason the Lord's Supper is so significant. What the Lord is saying in the Lord's Supper, He's saying, I'm sitting with you. He's the host, we're the guests. And we're at table with the Lord, which means He's our friend, which means He's safe, which means He's committed to us because He's at table with us. Now, this is all in Jewish custom. Peter would never do something like this. By no means, Lord. But then the Lord says to him, you go down and meet those people. And you, without hesitation, you do what they say. So Peter knew now he was under gospel orders. It was different from anything he had ever experienced before. And so he says, okay, come in. And now notice what happens in verse 23b. Obedient, prayerful visionaries break anti-gospel traditions. He's already done that by inviting them in. But let's look what else he does. The next day, first of all, believers break anti-gospel traditions. Verses 23b through 29. Notice what happens. The next day he rose and went away with them. God has shown me, he says to them, that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. This is an amazing thing now. Peter not only invites them into his house, but he travels 32 miles along the coast and goes up to Caesarea. Let me tell you about Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital of the Roman occupation of Israel. Now, we know Jerusalem would be the the city of God. It was what the Jews considered the capital. But the occupying forces had their capital in Caesarea. It was like the military town. It was the staging area for all their military operations. Makes sense, doesn't it? It's right on the coast. So the Romans had dug out a harbor there. 
They could bring their ships in with all their troops and supplies and they could lay it out and store it right there in Caesarea and then they could occupy all of Israel. The Jews hated Caesarea. It was the scourge of the earth. They called it the daughter of Edom, which is to mean it's the daughter of treachery and ungodliness. And Jews would hardly go there. It was one of the few cities that you'd have in all of Israel that was where the Jews were a minority. The majority population were Gentiles. Peter goes to Caesarea. He goes to Cornelius' home. Cornelius, who's a captain in the occupying army and who's a dog Gentile. And Peter walks in and makes this amazing speech. And you'll notice that Cornelius falls down before him and worships Peter. Cornelius is not converted yet. He doesn't know better. He's heard about Peter being a healer. Maybe Peter is some kind of a god, you know, using your pagan mentality that Cornelius also would have had. Maybe Peter is some kind of a god. So he falls down before him and worships him. Peter refuses to allow Cornelius to treat him as a god. And Peter... Uh, refuses to treat uh, Cornelius like a dog. And both of those instincts are there. I'm not God. You're not a dog. We're all human beings together. Now, this is radical gospel invasion in men's ways of thinking, their biases and their prejudices, their unwillingness to be fair with, with other people. It's all happening right here. So first of all, the vision of the gospel will break anti-gospel traditions in believers, but then it also does it in seekers. Verses 30 through 33, Cornelius says, So I sent for you at once. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter never had a more captive audience in all of his life. Gathered by a Gentile leader who gathered his other soldiers and servants to hear Peter preach. Wow. Both Cornelius and Peter are breaking their traditions in order to get the gospel communicated. Now let's press on into verses 34 through 48. And look here and we'll see that the gospel ministry transforms every people group. The gospel ministry transforms every people group. These divisions between Gentile and Jew are so deep and the mutual feelings are so hostile it's difficult for us to understand. We could, of course, take the obvious divisions here in our own country, especially between African-American, European-American, and look at how there was mutual distrust, there was great abuse of one over the other, and a lack of coming together through the years. I remember seeing... Uh, you know, de Tocqueville's famous uh, essay on America when he toured America and spoke about its kindness and its generosity and its charitable involvement, its, its uh, nonprofit institutions that were the, the real blessing of the nation, especially the church, de Tocqueville said. But de Tocqueville also remarked on the uh, African-American population and if you read him, you'll see that he says that this is the big concern. It's the relationship between uh, the African-Americans and the European-Americans. says this is the big concern for the future. Now, he's writing back in the 18th century. 
And he's saying he, he doesn't see very good prospects for this because he says if the oppression ever ceases, uh, the pent-up frustration and anger and hatred is going to be such that the country will implode. I'm, I'm giving you Sandy Wilson words here, but that's basically what de Tocqueville was saying. And uh, you look at the problem that was there, or you look at the Jew-Gentile problem, and gentlemen, there's no solution for it. And I've now lived long enough in, in areas where I've seen African Americans and whites try to resolve their differences. And I'll just tell you this. Basically, humanly speaking, I don't see any solution outside of the gospel. <laughs> That's one reason I'm so glad to be living in Memphis, Tennessee. Because we actually have the only answer for what our city needs. The only thing I've ever seen, really, to bring people together in mutual trust and love, embracing each other, and celebrating when their children marry each other. The only way I've ever seen this happen is in the gospel. And this is exactly what Peter and Cornelius are dealing with. It's not just that the gospel allows it. Now, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But the gospel commands it. And what you realize when you're dealing with a text like this is you cannot claim that the gospel has claimed you until you claim everybody's your brother in Jesus Christ. It ain't going to work. It's oil and water. It's an oxymoron. By no means, Lord. That's what it's like when we refuse to deal with one another as brothers. Now let's see what happens. You're going to see in this text, the gospel really does work. The rock gospel really does make brothers out of people who are very different. The gospel really does transform both the old encrusted Jewish culture, which was traditional church at its worst in some ways, and it also transforms a wild and woolly Gentile and then brings them together as brothers and sisters. First of all, notice the gospel message must be heard. Verses 34 through 43. I want us to see three things primarily in this text. The first one is the gospel must be heard. Now, I've, I've already explained why that is. Uh, it's not, a vision's not adequate to save. A vision is a vision. It gives you vision to go, to go get saved. It gives you a vision where you can find the gospel. But you must hear the gospel. So it says here, so Peter opened his mouth. Peter spoke. Peter shared some news. And that's what, exactly what's necessary to transform. Notice about the gospel. First of all, the gospel is for all. Peter says... Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. That's a major breakthrough for Peter. The gospel is for anyone who will come and seek Him and find Him. Secondly, notice the gospel brings peace. Preaching good news of peace. That's right out of Isaiah 52.7. Blessed are the feet of those who proclaim good news, who announce peace. So the gospel is good news of peace. What is this peace? Well, peace primarily between me and God. And therefore, peace in my own conscience because I'm no longer condemned. I'm reconciled to God. Peace. But then it's peace between me and my neighbor. And only the gospel brings that peace. And if you have peace between... I'm sorry about this mic. I know it's driving you crazy. Uh, if you have peace between yourself and God then you will have peace increasingly with your neighbor. And you can't have this peace if you don't have this peace. 
It's like saying, I just want, you know what? I don't want the whole cross. I don't want the cross beams. I just want a big stick in the ground. But the cross has a vertical and has a horizontal. So if you have the peace of God, it will affect your life in horizontal relationships with people who otherwise were inaccessible to you or undesirable to you. That's what the gospel does. It's the gospel of peace. And then, of course, ultimately, the peace that comes is peace with the entire cosmos. That's the reason the angels declared uh, to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. So it's glory to God, it's peace to men. And what is this peace? We'll look at Isaiah. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The child will crawl over the hole of the asp. We'll have peace even between ancient enemies. That's what the gospel does. So it's for everybody. And it's a gospel that brings peace. And if you don't have the peace, you may not have the gospel. So thirdly, notice verses 36b through 43, the gospel is about Jesus. So the gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about going to church ultimately. It's not about reading the Bible. It's not about being good. It's not about just turning from wickedness. No, the gospel is primarily about Jesus Christ. And when Peter does this preaching, or at least, let's put it this way, Luke synthesizes what Peter preached. Peter, don't, don't, don't tell your preacher now uh, this Sunday that Peter did it in about three minutes. Don't, don't tell him that. Luke, Luke is synthesizing from a much longer sermon. Give me a break. So, but notice what Luke says are the salient points. Undoubtedly, Peter, this probably would have been a seven-point sermon. He had about seven things to say about Jesus. And he probably took time to explain each one of them and their significance and why you need to know this. And let's see what these seven points were. First of all, he says, Jesus was anointed. Verse 36b and 38a. It's a wonderful text here. Jesus received the Spirit in fullness. Notice, we've already seen how every leading character in the book of Acts was filled with the Spirit. Well, Jesus above all and with all me- without measure was full of the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit at His baptism. And He went about doing good. And that's important. We don't have time to go into it any more than that. Secondly, He was righteous. Here we go. He went about doing good and healing. He was righteous. He obeyed the law. He was kind to His neighbor. And as Hebrews 4.15 says, he was without sin. He was just like us in every way, except he didn't sin. So he was anointed by the Spirit, full of the Spirit's power, moving him into the mission of God. Even though he was the second person of the Trinity incarnate, he was full of the Spirit, and he went about doing good. Thirdly, Jesus was then crucified unrighteously. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. What's the significance of mentioning tree here? Well, we've studied Deuteronomy and we saw that anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. And Paul picks that up in Galatians 3.13 to show us the significance of crucifixion on the wood. And that is that you're a cursed man. So Jesus underwent the curse. And you can believe me, Peter explained that. He exegeted that. He took time to explain if the curse went on Jesus, the curse is not going on you. And so you're delivered from the curse. And in paganism, there are all kinds of ideas about how the gods can curse you and you're under this kind of a curse and that kind of a curse. And what Peter's saying, no curse. Not only from these no gods, these demons, but no curse from the living God. You're free of that curse because the curse fell on Jesus Christ. And then he says Jesus was raised. And no doubt he had much to say about that. And you can look, I've given you some verses here in Acts where you can see the resurrection over and over again is at the central place of the gospel communication by the apostles. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, raised to newness of life, having experienced the curse for us, that sacrifice was received by God and validated by the resurrection of the victim. So the victim now becomes the victor. And furthermore, since he's raised to newness of life, so will you be. And then he was presented. He was made to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. And we know there are 500 of these people, we're told by Peter, uh, by Paul, rather, in 1 Corinthians 15. So there, was, there were witnesses of this. And Jesus presented himself so that there would be human sensation of actually seeing him in his resurrected body. So that we're not asked to believe something that sounds mythical like most religions. We're asked to believe something that really happened where reliable people actually saw him and touched him with their own hands. As John says, we saw it with our eyes, we heard with our ears, we touched with our own hands, we experienced him. And our brothers have seen him, and you'll see him too one day. So he was presented, and he, then he, he's been proclaimed. And Peter says, he commanded us to preach. I'm preaching to you because that's what Jesus told me to do. You're receiving the gospel because Jesus wanted the gospel to come to you. That's the reason I'm here. That's the reason I'm here. It's because Jesus commanded 2,000 years ago the gospel go out in your own area and to all the nations of the world. So the preaching of Jesus now continues through his disciples. This is the preaching of Jesus. Jesus is now presenting himself to the world through the proclamation of the gospel. So he's still presenting himself to people, not physically, but in the preaching of the gospel. And then uh, he is predicted. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so Peter was saying, gentlemen, you've shown respect for the Jewish religion. You've been listening in the synagogues on the outer walls. You've been listening to the text week after week. Let me tell you what those texts lead to. They lead right to Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament is about Him. The entire New Testament would be about Him. My preaching is about Him. It's all about Christ, through whom the universe was made and for whom was glory it was sustained and who now has come to rescue men from their own sins. It's all about Christ. Be sure that you're preaching. Be sure that your Sunday school teaching. Be sure that your small group is about Jesus Christ. Be sure that when you're sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't know Him, that through all talking about, you know, Alabama football and LSU football and UT football, after you have all your conversations about whatever you're going to have about, get to Jesus Christ and who He is and what He means to you. Okay. The gospel then not only uh, must be heard, but the gospel promise must be received. B. Well, this is the promise of the Spirit. And notice the Spirit comes through hearing. Verse 44. The Spirit's going to come when people hear the gospel of Christ. That's when they'll be filled with Him. And aren't you renewed this way? When you hear the gospel, you're renewed. The Spirit refills you and renews you, empowers you. It's through hearing the Word. That's the reason we study the Word. Because we want to be close to God. And He draws near to us and fills us with His Spirit. Same here. Verse 45, he falls on all without discrimination. He doesn't fall on rich people. He doesn't just fall on poor people. He doesn't just fall on black people or white people or yellow people. He doesn't just fall on one hemisphere of the world. He falls on all people. And he, he empowers praise. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. The Spirit enables you to worship. You want to know why your worship is a little dull? 
It's because your heart's a little dull. And it's because you haven't been seeking him and asking him to come in and fill you and move you to extol his praises. And then he qualifies us for baptism, the Spirit does. Can anyone withhold water from these folks? So Peter wants to baptize them. And then notice in 48b, the Spirit creates community. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Look at this. Isn't this precious? These, these men get converted. And then they want the apostle to stay with them and teach them and fellowship with them. And the Spirit does that. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of the Spirit changes lives and builds community. Now, when we come to chapter 11, we're not going to read it because of lack of time, but let's take our six minutes just simply to note that as Peter now goes back to the church, uh, and you see there in the first verse, now the apostles and the brothers who were, th- who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So Peter went up to Jerusalem. And the circumcised party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. All right, let's notice this. The gospel church must embrace the gospel family. The gospel church must embrace the gospel family. So you can't just have your family and those that your cousins intermarried with and those who used to belong to your neighborhood. And so they all kind of, so your church is kind of like a, a natural family reunion. No. The gospel church must go out actively to get the gospel family, which is from all nations, all backgrounds, all religious backgrounds, all economic classes. And you and I know very well the church doesn't look very much like this. The church is hived off into neighborhoods that are class and race specific, largely. So our entire community is hived off into neighborhoods, into ghettos, and the churches are formed there. And they look very much like the neighborhood, which means the churches look like they have no Holy Spirit in them. The churches are just like the Kiwanis Club or just like the Garden Club or some other club that's in that community that consists of only people that live in that neighborhood who are the friends of those people. There's something wrong with that. I think you can see this. The church, A, sometimes opposes the gospel. Oh, really? Tell me about it. They're criticizing Peter for bringing these people in who previously weren't in. B, the church must hear gospel reasoning. So Peter, stand up and start talking. Gentlemen, we need people who are equipped to give the speech. A speech backed up by a life. And that's what Peter was doing. Peter was saying, look, I used to believe just like you did. It was just a few days ago, I believed just like you did. But I went to prayer and God spoke to me in my heart. And he showed me in reality that these people I had previously excluded are meant to be included. And Peter is now ready to die for that principle because he knows this from the Lord. The gospel demands gospel inclusion. God demands, rather, gospel inclusion, verses 4 through 12. And Peter explains this. He's being very rational. He says that God demands it. It's of God. So, gentlemen, you've got an argument you need to make. You better make it from God. We say, how am I going to do that? God didn't give me a vision. Well, let me tell you what He gave you. This book. And He gave you chapter 10. He gave you chapter 11 and Acts. There you go. Start right there. When I go to talk about race relations anywhere in our city, I take Acts 10 and Acts 11 with me wherever I go. It's real simple. God commands it. 
So who are we to oppose God? There's, there's your argument. And it needs to take place in every single Bible-believing church in this city. And it needs to, that speech needs to be given by men who will back it up with their lives and who are living it out. That God demands gospel inclusion. Notice what else Peter says. God is preparing their hearts. He says, not only did he teach me something, but he was working in Cornelius. And all you have to do is go out and do a little work for about two weeks. And you'll find out that God is preparing hearts out here. And you go back to your church and make the argument. God demands it, and this is exactly what's happening. And then thirdly, the Spirit is falling on them. Have you guys received the Spirit? Well, let me tell you what else. I've seen the Spirit and His work over here with them. These are brothers. And then notice lastly, verse 18, the believing church will repent and rejoice. I said the believing church. All the church is not believing. The unbelieving church will rise up and leave or quit or throw stones or try to get you canned, uh, you know, get you off the session or off the deacon board or fire you or something. The unbelieving church will try to get rid of you. The believing church will repent through your message in your life and they will rejoice. Now, let me just say this. Obviously, this whole 66-verse story has massive implications in our lives. It has massive implications in our church. If you look at our church, or if you look at our neighborhood, take eight zip codes where most of our people come from. It's 30% African American and about 60% Caucasian, 10% other. If you look at the demographics of our congregation, it's not 30% African American. It's not even 10% other. So what's wrong? Well... Going way back, there are some people who weren't applying the gospel radically. So what are you going to do about it? You start applying it. You don't get mad. You don't pick fights. And you don't back down. And you keep teaching what you believe and you keep doing what you believe. You say, well, Wilson, what have you done? Well, things are changing slowly. Here's my prayer. And for those of you from Second Presbyterian, I'll tell you, by the time that I retire... My prayer is that Second Presbyterian Church has reached the tipping point, which probably is about the 15% figure. And when you hit 15%, it'll start to go viral. And the reason is everybody knows this is really gospel good. And this church will look like our neighborhood. And based on my experience and observing other churches, that seems to be the right way to go. Meanwhile, if you look at our recent church plants, what type of churches are they? Downtown is 50-50, black and white. Midtown church plant, about the same. And then, Ricardo, you're over here in a Hispan- new first-generation Hispanic community, largely Hispanic and Anglo over here. So what do you do? You plant churches with a vision, a gospel vision. And you say to folks who've been in traditions for a long time, look, folks, we've got to change. And a few people take it up. And when they take it up, you make space for them. Let me tell you something else you can do. Our campus ministry, the University of Memphis, has about 200 students in it. And about 80 of them are African American. Well, guess who are some of our new church planters and missionaries are going to be? Going to be some folks who are African American from the University of Memphis. Undoubtedly. A funnel is being created. So you say, what do I do? I don't know. Just start where you are. And most of what you do, if you're serious about it, will probably be underground, probably not even be noticed. Probably most people in our church are not even aware of what I just told you. 
except that I tell all the new members exactly what our strategy is. And if you're going to work on this, just realize this is a long-term gospel solution. We have long-term historic issues. Let's commit ourselves to a long-term solution. And the solution will eventually be found when you have everybody, regardless of their background, worshiping in church together with their children intermarrying and creating families that are blended. That's when you know that you've received someone as brother. And let me tell you something. If you don't receive at that level, you've not received him as brother, period. If you are saying because of his background, your children are not going to marry his children, you have not received him as brother. It's just that simple. And you're contrary to the gospel. You've got a tradition that needs to be exploded. Now, once we get to that kind of a vision where we really see we need to become family and you look to the Lord in prayer, He will give you vision for what your next step is in your business, in your civic work, in your church, and in your family. He will give you vision for how you are to contribute to the implosion of ancient traditions that are anti-gospel. And you're ready now to step into an entirely new tradition with all of its multiple implications. And you receive it, even though you said three times, by no means, Lord. Try one more answer. We're going to give you a fourth chance. Three times you said, by no means, Lord. I'll give you a fourth chance. What are you going to say now? That's what happened to Peter. And that's what needs to happen to the church in Memphis. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for saving us from the penalty of sin. Thank you increasingly for delivering us from the entail of sin, the power of sin, the destruction of sin, the hatred and division of sin. And we pray that you'll make each one of us instruments of your peace. Gospel peace. Enable us to enter the gospel lifestyle and the gospel mission with all of its implications that we may see clearly set before us one day the conclusion of this gospel mission when our Lord Jesus Christ Himself comes back and includes every tribe and nation and people from all over the world and through all the ages and we are truly brother and sister in Him forever and ever. During this season especially, we pray that our hearts may be lifted up by the power of the Spirit to extol your praises. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Jim.